You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Well, good morning, my uh, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be starting a, a new series this week, and over the next few weeks, God willing, we're going to be considering a subject that really is central to our faith. It's one that I think we're all familiar with as Christadelphians, but yet I think its significance can sometimes fade into the background in the busyness of life. But it's not a subject that we can ignore, and actually it has quite profound implications for our everyday life. And this subject is the principle of godliness. You might also recognize this term recognize this phrase by the term god manifestation, which is essentially the same thing. But we're going to be considering godliness in this series from the perspective of Paul in his letter to 1st Timothy. And the book of 1 Timothy actually has more than half of all the occurrences in the New Testament of the word godliness. And as such, 1 Timothy, I think, provides not only an overview of godliness in general, but it also has important exhortations for our own walk in the truth. Paul was writing to Timothy to encourage and to exhort him on how he was to behave himself in the house of God, the ecclesia. And the behavior that Timothy was to emulate in his life, and really that all believers are to emulate in their life, could be summed up really in one word, and that was godliness. And Paul reminds us of the importance of godliness. If you come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll see what Paul has to say here in this chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll pick it up at verse 6 for context. He says, thou, he says there, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness." For, God, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So godliness wasn't just something that had a little value. It, had, it was profitable unto all things. So godliness is profitable, or as the word means, advantageous for everything that we do. It's really quite a profound statement when you, when you stop and think about it for a moment. What else in life affects everything that we do? It's advantageous for everything that we do in life. And if there was something that was going to give you an advantage in everything that you do in life, wouldn't you want to know about it? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring in our series together, God willing. Because godliness, as verse 8 says, not only affects our life now, but our life to come as well. It's something that will benefit us for eternity. So no wonder it says in verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. 
So how are we going to be approaching our series uh, together? So over three weeks, we're going to be looking at this subject. The first class today is entitled The Mystery of Godliness, and that's taken from 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. What is the mystery of godliness and how can it change our life is what we'll be looking at this morning. In our second class, entitled Doctrine According to Godliness, taken from 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. In that class, we'll be looking about what it is about doctrine that affects how we act. And how has, how has a misunderstanding of doctrine caused some to really commit unspeakable crimes throughout history? In our third class, we'll be looking at godliness with contentment, taken from 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. How is it that godliness needs to change our characters? And really, how can we develop an attitude of contentment in a world that is discontent. So that will be our series together, God willing. So the mystery of godliness, our first class, the mystery of godliness is a phrase that actually only occurs once in scripture. So let's have a look at this verse to see the phrases that are associated with it. If you're still in 1 Timothy, if you just come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and at verse 16. It says there, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So what exactly is this verse talking about? Well, I think there's a lot here that we're going to try to unpack a little bit later. But first, let's consider the context of the chapter as a whole. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul was writing to Timothy to exhort him about the conduct of leaders in the ecclesia. And so in verse 1, if a man was to take on the office of a bishop, there were certain characteristics that he was to exhibit. And then really from verses 2 down to verse 12, it lists some of those characteristics. So for instance, it says, They were to be blameless, vigilant, sober, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, and so on. And if a man was to take care of the ecclesia of God in verse 5, he had to exhibit the characteristics of God. And Paul was writing to Timothy to exhort him on the character, the behavior that he needed to exhibit. In verse 15 it says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There was a certain conduct and behavior that a disciple of God needed to have. In the context, this context about behavior in the house of God, I think really sets the consideration, or sets the stage for our consideration of the mystery of godliness in verse 16. And so when we consider the mystery of godliness, this somehow is going to relate to the behavior of a disciple of Christ. So hopefully we'll be able to appreciate that just a little bit better as we progress this morning. But before we go any further, let's just be clear about what uh, what this verse is not saying. In the King James, anyway, it says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The word for controversy here in the Greek actually has nothing to do with what we would normally associate with controversy, as some type of conflict. 
The Greek word for without controversy actually means confessedly. And the ESV helps us to understand the sense of it a bit better. In the ESV, it's translated, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. So what this verse is talking about is confessing that the mystery of godliness is great, not that somehow some type of controversy or conflict needs to be associated with godliness. So with that out of the way, let's just consider what the idea of godliness is all about. The word godliness is the Greek word eusebia. It's really made up of two different words, eu and sebia. The first, the first of those is eu, which means well or right, and sebia, which means worship. And so together, this really signifies right worship. If you were to look at Strong's, it says, devout reverence and attitude, conduct, and deed. And in Thayer's, it's, it says that it's piety towards God. So godliness is having a devout reverence towards God. It's exhibiting a godly attitude. It's having a godly conduct and doing de- deeds that are in keeping with the things of God. So godliness is having, as the word might signify, having a God-likeness, being like God. Or you could say godliness is God-manifestation, showing forth the characteristics of God. This word Eusebia occurs 15 times in the New Testament. Ten times in Paul's writings, which are actually only recorded in his pastoral letters. Eight times of which are in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy, and once in Titus. It's also translated in Acts 3 verse 12 as holiness, and it occurs four times in 2 Peter. So you could say 1 Timothy could be called an exhortation to godliness. But what's interesting is that in the original, the word Eusebia actually doesn't include or suggest the name of God in any way. You remember, it means right worship. There's another related word, which is Theosebia, which means reverence of God. And of course, the Greek word Theo being God. But in, interestingly, the word Theosebia is also translated godliness, but it only occurs once in 1 Timothy 2 verse 10. So when we consider the phrase, the mystery of godliness, Paul is very careful in the words that he uses. This is not the mystery of God. It's not the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery of godliness. Or you could say it's the mystery of right worship, as the word Eusebia means. And many have used this phrase, mystery of godliness, down through history to ascribe some sort of mysterious connection between the nature of God and the nature of Christ. But scripture doesn't teach really anything of the sort. The real meaning behind the mystery of godliness, I think, is much more impactful. And really, it's not mysterious at all. So why then is it called the mystery of godliness? I think Brother John Thomas helps to explain this idea quite succinctly for us in his book, Elpis Israel. So we'll just consider a a short quotation from Elpis Israel. He says, But while God lightly esteems the wisdom of the reputed wise, there is a wisdom which he invites all men to embrace. This is styled the wisdom of God and a mystery. 
It is also termed the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, which none of the princes of this world knew. It is said to be hidden in a mystery because until the apostolic age it was not clearly made known. Here is the knowledge of God in which are contained exceeding great and precious promises, the understanding of which is able to make a man wise and a partaker of the divine nature. Now although these hidden things have been clearly made known, they still continue to be styled the mystery. Not because of their unintelligibility, but because they were once secret. Hence the things preached unto the Gentiles and by them believed are styled by Paul the mystery of the faith and the mystery of godliness. Some of the items of which he enumerates, such as God manifest in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Thus an intelligible mystery characterizes the once hidden wisdom of God and becomes the subject matter of an enlightened faith. So the wisdom of God is said to be hidden in a mystery because until the apostolic age it wasn't clearly made known. But now it has been clearly made known. But it's still called a mystery because it was once secret. And in fact, the word mystery in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, is the Greek word mysterion, which actually means a secret. So perhaps it might be easier to think of the mystery of godliness as the secret of godliness. Though the wisdom of God was once a secret, that secret has now been revealed. And in fact, Scripture is quite clear that this secret or this mystery has now been revealed. And let's just consider a few verses just to make the point. In Psalm 25 and 14, it says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. In Luke 8, verse 10, it says, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. They were to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Just a few more to, to make the point. Romans 16 and 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. 1 Corinthians 15 and 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Ephesians 1 verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. And finally, in Colossians 1 verse 26, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has revealed the secret of godliness to us in the pages of Scripture. He's revealed to us how we can be partakers with him through his plan of salvation. The secret of God's plan of salvation is only a mystery to those who have no interest in searching out what God has revealed to us in the Bible. But to understand what the secret of godliness is, is a privilege that, well, it hasn't been given to many. And it is an incredible privilege to have God reveal to us how we can be changed and given immortality. 
but there's many that haven't been given this privilege. If you come with me, just keep a hand in 1 Timothy 3. Come with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and at verse 7 it says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the princes of this world had known what we know now about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says they would not have crucified him. Indeed, many in in this world would have a completely different outlook in life if they truly understood the hidden wisdom of God. What God has offered to us is without comparison. Verse 9 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The things which God has prepared for those that love him is really beyond our comprehension. It's greater than anything we've ever experienced. But God has revealed to us how we can be partakers with him. Verse 10 says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Without God revealing to us his plan of salvation, we would be without hope. But yet through the revelation of God, we have a glimpse of the great things that God has in store for us. Through the searching of the scriptures, the deep things of God are revealed. Godliness is being like God, changing our characters so we can think and act more like God. So our behavior is emulating that of the Lord Jesus Christ, who of course was manifesting his father. And we are incredibly privileged to have God's plan of salvation revealed to us. But in order to be part of God's plan of salvation, we have to change. We have to change from being sinners serving ourselves to serving God with a godly character. It can often be quite difficult to truly appreciate a good thing in life until you've experienced its opposite. So for instance, if you've experienced sorrow or some type of grief, it gives you a whole new appreciation for when you experience happiness. If you've experienced bad health in life, it gives you a new appreciation for good health. If you've experienced war, it gives you a new appreciation for peace. Or if you've experienced darkness, it gives you a new appreciation for light. There's many contrasts like this in life that give you a new appreciation for its opposite. There just so happens to be a contrast like this in opposition to the mystery of godliness. And considering the difference between the two can, I think, help us to appreciate how much better the one is than the other. In opposition to the mystery of godliness is the mystery of iniquity. Comparing the differences between the two, I think, is quite striking. So the mystery of godliness, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, but the mystery of iniquity is referenced in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Both had a doctrinal element related to them. Of the mystery of godliness, it was God manifest in the flesh. Of the mystery of iniquity, it was Jesus is not come in the flesh. Their origin was different. The mystery of godliness was revealed by God, whereas the mystery of iniquity was or it's inherent in our nature. 
characteristics are very different. The mystery of godliness is God manifestation, whereas the mystery of iniquity is flesh manifestation. The mystery of godliness works righteousness, whereas the mystery of iniquity works deceit and unrighteousness. The mystery of godliness exalts God, whereas the mystery of iniquity exalts self. And it's evident which one is which. The mystery of godliness works signs and wonders, whereas the mystery of iniquity is pretended signs and wonders. Interestingly enough, they both have what you might call a rallying cry. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, great is the mystery of godliness. You might recall from Acts 19 when they all chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they both have very different destinies. The mystery of godliness ends in salvation, whereas the mystery of iniquity is destruction. These two mysteries are really in complete opposition to one another. Their destinies are opposite as well. The mystery of godliness provides salvation, whereas the mystery of iniquity ends in destruction. And in fact, this contrast is nothing new. This, this battle or this war between the two ways has existed really since the fall of man in the garden. So for instance, this is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was the law of God versus the law of sin in Romans 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And this is the spirit versus the flesh. Galatians 5 and 16 This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. This war between the two seeds has existed for all of mankind's existence. Left to ourselves, though, will be a part of the mystery of iniquity. Serving our self and manifesting the flesh. And the challenge that presents itself to us is that our default state just so happens to be on the wrong side of the battle. But what's significant about the mystery of godliness is that it reveals to us the secret of changing sides. We don't have to stay on the wrong side of the battle. God's revealed to us the secret of changing allegiances. And what is the secret? Well, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 elaborates on it by the way of six short phrases that really sum up the whole divine scheme of salvation. Come with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and at verse 16 again, it says... Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Here was a sort of foundation statement for the early ecclesia. Brother Alfred Nichols has this to say about this statement in his book, The Letters to Timothy and Titus. 
He says, we come now to the doctrinal statement, which is the pivot of the whole epistle, appropriately set about midway through it. Although it is not introduced by the usual faithful is the saying, it is nevertheless a foundation statement of the faith. It is in metrical form, easily remembered, and possibly an early hymn. It links directly with the Old Testament background to the promise that the gospel would be for Gentile as well as Jew. And it summed up the purpose of God revealed in the living Christ as the very foundation of the ecclesia, which was to defend and confirm the faith. Here was a foundation statement of the faith. And it had been constructed in such a way that it could be easily remembered. Six short phrases, as he says, set in metrical form that could be easily memorized and even sung as an early hymn. Here was a great way to remember one of the key doctrines that really summed up the purpose of God through Christ. Let's consider briefly what it was that these statements intended to convey. Well, the first was God manifest in the flesh. And if there was ever a phrase that's been uh, misconstrued by Christianity at large to mean something different than originally intended, I think this is certainly one of them. We'll consider this phrase a bit more in our next class, God willing. But this phrase really has nothing to do with incarnation and everything to do with God manifestation. And we'll consider just a few key passages to make the point. John 1 verse 14, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word being made flesh and dwelling among the disciples is here, well, it's referring to Jesus. It was Jesus Christ who had come in the flesh, who had been born of a woman who was made of flesh and blood just like the rest of mankind. But yet he was also the son of God, and as God's son, he would manifest the characteristics of his father. 1 John 4 verse 2 says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. God had sent his son as a human being to show the world how to manifest God. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, it says, Purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. With the arrival of Jesus Christ on the earth, God was making manifest his plan of salvation. The way through which death would be abolished and life and immortality would be brought about was well, it was through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ had lived a sinless life and he'd showed to men of which he was a part a better way, a way to manifest God. Christ did not come to do his own will, but to do the will of his Father. In John 12 and 49 it says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. The words that Christ spoke came from his Father. They were not his own words, they were the words of his Father. And so in that sense, he could be referred to as the Word of God. 
because he spoke God's words. The words that came out of the mouth of Jesus are to be received as the direct teaching of the Father in heaven. And so though a simple statement, God was manifest in the flesh, manifest in the flesh there's a lot behind this simple yet profound statement. Well, then there was justified in the spirit. Christ had lived a sinless life, but because of his death on the cross, we too have a hope. 1 Timothy 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Because Christ died on the cross and was without sin, he was a just individual. He was quickened by the Spirit. He was brought to life again through the Spirit of God. And in his death, he provided a way for us who are unjust to be brought to God. He provided a way for us to be justified in the, or by the Spirit through the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 and 11 says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We too can be justified through the name of the Lord Jesus by becoming associated with him through baptism. Well, the next phrase was seen of angels. And this, I guess it could be a reference to the angels who attended the events of the resurrection and shortly thereafter, but I think a more satisfying explanation in the context of Timothy and, and in Mark 16 after the resurrection of the Lord is that the angels, or messengers as the word means, relate to the disciples who saw Jesus shortly after his resurrection to life. Keep a hand here and come with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll just pick it up at verse 4. And verse 3, for context, Christ died for our sins. And in verse 4 it says, And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. These appearances of Jesus to his brethren helped to establish the first century ecclesia. They helped to instruct the early believers in the finer points of the gospel and show to them the significance of what Christ had accomplished for them. And so in this sense, these appearances were of more immediate importance than those to angelic beings. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, was concerned with the ecclesia, God's house. And it would be the ecclesia, the mortal messengers, who would witness to the world the foundation of the faith. Jesus, as they could testify to, was a living Messiah. And there were many eyewitnesses that could testify to this. They would go on to witness this very thing to the world. Well, then it was preached unto the Gentiles. God in his love wished all men to be saved. 
1 Timothy 2 and 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wanted all men to be saved. He wasn't desiring that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And as such, this secret, this gospel, would be preached to all men. They would all be given this opportunity. In Mark 16 and 15, it says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Acts 2, verse 39, it says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Though many would reject this offer of salvation, the offer had been extended to men and women from all different walks of life. But this offer had to be accepted. It had to be believed. Which is the next phrase, believed on in the world. Those who heard the gospel message in the world have to believe it. The well-known verse in John 3, verse 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Though this offer of everlasting life was extended to all, many would refuse this offer and choose not to believe. But God is willing to reward those who do believe. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 it says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. This really, this is the secret of godliness, that a few of the poor and humble of this world who have made themselves nothing for Christ may yet gain all things in the age to come. In Colossians 1 and 26 it says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only had Christ manifested his Father, but those who had believed on Christ would follow after Christ. They too would manifest the Father. And as it says, it would be Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, then it would be received up into glory. Having manifested his father through a life of perfect obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead, and soon after he would ascend into heaven and sit on the right hand of his father in glory. In Mark 16 and 19, it says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Christ would be received up, into glory. But he's also given us an opportunity to follow after him. Colossians 3, verse 3 says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Through God's marvelous plan of salvation, we have opportunity to be like him.
In 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Such really is the secret of godliness. Taking sinful men and women without hope, working in their lives, and making them fit vessels to participate with Christ in his glory. Brother Bolton summarized this whole idea quite well in his words in the Christadelphian, and this was in 1957. He said, the various phrases sum up the divine scheme of salvation. The context of the words should be noted. Paul had been giving Timothy instructions about the way men should comport themselves in the house of God, which he explained was the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It will be seen that the mystery of godliness is the truth concerning Jesus, working in men and women, fitting them for participation in the divine nature. When the mystery of godliness is apprehended by a member of the common crowd, a change occurs. That mystery is still at work amongst men. The mystery of godliness still achieves what men may well term miracles in changing the minds and dispositions of men and women. This statement is based on knowledge, not hearsay. It has been written of Jesus, the simple record of his three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and than all the exhortations of moralists. The mystery of godliness changes the minds and dispositions of men. And when the truth concerning Jesus is apprehended, it changes how we live our life. A correct understanding of doctrine affects how we live our life. Put more simply, doctrine impacts action. Well, we've been blessed with an understanding of God's plan of salvation, but we can't lose sight of how that knowledge needs to change how we live our life. So we'll maybe close with that and leave a couple minutes uh, for comments here. Next week, God willing, we'll be considering doctrine according to godliness and what it is about doctrine that affects how we act. How can a misunderstanding of doctrine cause us to completely lose our way? In our series together, we've been looking at the subject of godliness under the theme of the mystery of godliness. And we've been considering it from the perspective of Paul in his first letter to Timothy. And in our last class, we considered the phrase, the mystery of godliness, and really what that means. And we considered a quote from uh, Brother Bolton in the Christadelphian, this was from 1957, that I think helped to summarize the whole idea. And this was the key part from it. He said, It will be seen that the mystery of godliness is the truth concerning Jesus, working in men and women, fitting them for participation in the divine nature. 
So he said the mystery of godliness is the truth concerning Jesus and really how that knowledge can change us. It can change us to be like Christ, that we might be partakers with him in the age to come. Now, the word for mystery, as we saw, is, means a secret. But that secret has been revealed in the life of Christ, as it's been recorded for us through the scriptures. Christ was able to show us through his life how to manifest God. He showed us how mortal men and women, those made of flesh and blood, can manifest God. And through a life of perfect obedience to his Father in heaven, he put down the inclination to sin. He put down the tendency to serve self and instead served God. And before Christ, this had never been done before. No mortal human being had ever gone without sin. Christ, too, submitted to the will of God and showed mankind what needs to happen to the flesh, what needs to happen to our selfish desires. But because Christ had not sinned, God raised him from the dead and made him the means through which we, too, can be raised up if we become associated with him and follow his example. And we considered in our last class two opposing mysteries that really highlight for us the distinction between serving God and serving self. So if you recall last week, we looked at these two opposing mysteries. The one was the mystery of godliness, as it's mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, and then there was the mystery of iniquity. And at the core of these two was a key doctrine. These were two opposing ways that could be followed. One of them exalted God, and one of them exalted self. And really, as we mentioned, <clears throat> at the core of these two different ways was a key doctrine. First Timothy 3, verse 16 called it, God manifest in the flesh. But let's see how John describes this doctrine. We looked last week at God manifest in the flesh. If you come with me over to 1 John chapter 4, we'll have a look at how John describes this idea. 1 John chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 1. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So John starts off with a warning. Essentially, you can't believe everything that you hear. Some spirits are of God, and others are not. So then how do we know the difference? Well, he says in verse 2, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. John describes the Spirit of God as being the spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And this is the same spirit that Paul had talked about in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. God manifest in the flesh, as he put it there, was referring to Jesus Christ, who had come in the flesh. Christ, as it was, came in the flesh. He came as a mortal man. And John, too, describes the opposing spirit. In verse 3, he says, 
And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Here was the opposing mystery, as it were. Those who said that Jesus Christ was not come in the flesh were not of God. And in fact, he says this was the spirit of Antichrist. If you just cast your eyes down to verse 6, John calls it the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. These were two opposing spirits, two opposing mysteries. And what separated these two spirits or these two mysteries, really, it was the doctrine of the nature of Christ. Brother Bolton called it the truth concerning Jesus. One would lead to salvation and the other would lead to destruction. And this really is the subject of our second class, which is taken from 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, Doctrine According to Godliness. We'll consider a bit later how it is that this doctrine can be a differentiator between salvation and destruction. But first, though, let's consider the characteristics that separate these two paths. How do we recognize whether we're on the right path or not? I think Galatians chapter 5 helps to spell this out for us. If you come with me over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and at verse 16, it says, This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So here we have the spirit against the flesh. We are to walk after the ways of the spirit, and if we walk after the spirit, then we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. The ESV says they are opposed to each other. When we're following after the things of the spirit, we can't do the things that we might have done otherwise. We can't practice the fleshly things that are natural to us. The ESV says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Fleshly lusts come naturally to us. But if we're following after the Spirit, we can't be doing those things. So what are these things? Well, verse 19, he gives quite the list. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If we do the works of the flesh, the outcome is clear. He says in verse 21, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. So what is it that we're supposed to do then? Well, the contrast is in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Here are the opposing characteristics that we are to emulate 
as they're called, the fruit of the Spirit. So let's just consider these different characteristics in contrast to each other. The works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And perhaps when you see them laid out like this, it's easier to get the message. And here on the left-hand side, uh, we've recorded these in the ESV just to give a sense of uh, what these, some of these words mean. Some of them we might not be as familiar with as others. The works of the flesh, they were sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if that didn't cover everything, things like these. But on the other hand, there was the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what is it that all of the works of the flesh have in common? Well, they all were self-serving. They're all fulfilling, as John puts it in 1 John chapter 2, they're all fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But what's it, what is it that the fruit of the Spirit have in common? Well, they were all serving others. And in fact, this was the very message that Paul was trying to get across in Galatians chapter 5. If you're still in Galatians 5, you just come with me up, back up to verse 13. He says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. The whole point of having liberty or freedom in Christ was to learn how to serve one another in love. Really, the whole point of God's law was to teach us how to serve one another. Verse 14, he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God's law was intended to teach us how we can love our neighbor as ourself. How to serve one another and not serve ourself. We have to put to death the works of the flesh and serve each other. And this exactly, is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his own life. He put to death the flesh on the cross and he obeyed his father. He served others and not himself. And this is what we've been called to do as well. If you jump down to verse 24, it says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Those that have been baptized into Christ have to follow after Christ. They too have to put to death the works of the flesh. And they have to strive to walk after the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Well, not surprisingly, the same contrast, this is the same contrast that Paul is going to describe to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You come with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and at verse 3 it says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, 
even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. There's our phrase, doctrine according to godliness. If any man did not follow after the doctrine according to godliness, what would be the result? Well, verses 4 and 5 describes the conduct that would result as a consequence of following wrong doctrine. Verse 4 He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. As a result of believing wrong doctrine, they would be, as he says, they would be robbed of the truth. They would develop corrupt minds. And so here we had a list of the attitudes of those following wrong doctrine. And here put slightly differently from the ESV, the doctrine against godliness, they were proud, they were conceited. They had an unhealthy craving for controversy. They had an unhealthy craving or quarreling about words. They were envious, they had dissension, they were slanderous, they had evil suspicions. There was constant friction They had a depravity of mind, and they were deprived of the truth. Timothy was not to have anything to do with such attitudes or such teachings. He was told to withdraw himself from it. The man of God was to flee these things and instead follow after a doctrine that led to a very different sort of set of characteristics. Jump down to verse 11. He says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Here were characteristics of a very different sort. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And note how similar this list list is to the one that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 5, with the works of the flesh against the works of the spirit, or the fruit of the spirit. Wrong doctrine promoted an attitude that was simply self-serving. They thought that gain was godliness, but this was far from the truth. And if, if instead they were to serve others in response to doctrine that promoted godliness, there would be a very different result. As he calls it, there would be godliness with contentment is great gain. The irony was that those who followed wrong doctrine thought that they, when they received something of value, when they gained something, as as he says, that somehow God was blessing them. But this was far from the truth. The only real gain would come if they emptied themselves of self. It was only if they made themselves nothing for Christ that they would gain all things. But this way of thinking is contrary to the natural thinking of man. And so the secret of godliness, too, would remain hidden from them. But how is it that, that, that this doctrine can have such a profound impact on our conduct? 
Well, let's consider how it is that the nature of Christ can affect our conduct. Christ was born as a human being with the same flesh and blood that all human beings are born with. And as such, he had the same natural tendency towards sin that the rest of mankind has. The difference with Christ, however, is that, well, he never sinned. Christ lived a life of obedience to God. And in submission to the will of God, he laid down his life and died and put to death the flesh. And because he never sinned, God rose him from the dead and gave him eternal life. Christ then became the intercessor between God and man, the one through whom the rest of mankind can be brought to God. God is willing to forgive us of our sins if we follow the means of reconciliation that he has established through his Son. But in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, we have to follow the example of Christ. We have to manifest God in our own lives. We have to put to death our old way of life, which we do symbolically in baptism. And then strive to live a life in obedience with God's laws and no longer serve sin. If we do this, God is willing to raise us up to give us eternal life in the kingdom to come, just as he's already done with Christ. And this really, this is the method of salvation we know very well as Christadelphians. This is what we considered last week in association with the mystery of godliness. But now consider if Christ's nature was different. What would that mean? If Jesus was not like us, or perhaps he was God as well as man, as many Christians believe, things would be very different. Jesus would never have had the temptation to sin. We're told that God can't be tempted with evil, and so if Jesus is also God, well, the same must apply to him. If Jesus was also God, well, he could do anything. If Jesus is God, we have no hope of following after him. And if Christ died as our substitute in order for our sins to be forgiven, what more is there for us to do? There is no motivation for us to try harder to be like Christ. Our sins would be forgiven regardless of our attitude or our moral standards in life. And if Christ was God as well as man, then the problem of flesh, the problem of sin, well, it was never dealt with. Christ died in our place, and we're free to exercise the flesh as we please, so long as we perhaps recognize Jesus as our Savior, as some would say. The motivation to put to death the flesh in our own life is really completely removed. But if, however, Christ was a man who died as our representative, then it's of great importance for us to strive to follow Christ in our attitude and our morals. Otherwise, we won't be found faithful by him. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise, speaking of Christ, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ partook of the same flesh and blood as us. 
And because he overcame this nature, he was able to destroy sin. He was able to destroy sin, which has the power of death. Christ showed us what needs to happen to our flesh. It needs to be put to death. And fundamental doctrines of scripture have a profound impact on the way that we live our life. And this is certainly true with the nature of Christ. But getting the doctrine wrong, though, can also have a detrimental impact on our lives. A misunderstanding of the nature of Christ has led many over the centuries down a very different path. It's affected their conduct and their moral standards really in monumental ways. And it's a a fact that perhaps we don't take the time to appreciate as often as we should. And in a world where doctrine is being increasingly compromised, both within the ecclesia and without, I think it's something that we need to be reminded of. And so in the time that we have remaining, let's consider where a misunderstanding of the doctrine according to godliness can lead. Well, Paul, after establishing the ecclesia in Corinth and teaching them the first principle doctrines of the truth, was concerned that their understanding would be changed. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 3, he says, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. The teaching of the gospel was not complicated. It was really quite simple. The doctrine according to godliness was quite simple. But yet there was a certain subtlety about teachings that they would hear that the apostle was concerned would corrupt them. Another Jesus would be preached to them. As John would describe, it was one where Jesus did not come in the flesh. This teaching, which they had not previously accepted, would in time change the entire course of Christianity. John says in 1 John 4, verse 3, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. The doctrine which taught that Jesus Christ was not come in the flesh, well, it just so happens to be the doctrine that is considered the touchstone of Orthodox Christendom. This was the doctrine of the Trinity. This teaching would be completely contrary to biblical teaching. It would espouse another Jesus and completely change the nature of Christ. So let's just consider how that is. This teaching concerning Christ, the Antichrist teaching would say it was God the Son, whereas the Bible called him the Son of God. Of Christ, he was called the creator of Edemic creation. The Bible called him the last Adam. Of Christ, he was called, he was said he was co-eternal with the Father. Christ himself said, I am he that liveth and was dead. Of Christ they call him very God, whereas Paul says in Timothy, 
the man Christ Jesus. Of Christ, he is called equal to the Father, whereas Christ himself says, the Father is greater than I. Of Christ, it says, in this trinity, none is greater or less than another, whereas in the Bible, he's called, it says, the head of Christ is God. Christ is, is, called, is spoken of as the deity of Christ, whereas the Bible speaks of the divine origin of Christ. Christ is called the Son incomprehensible, whereas the Bible explains it. He says, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. They would know who he was. And Christ is spoken of as the preexistent Christ, whereas in Galatians 4 it says, God has sent forth his Son who was made of a woman. He had a beginning. And so really the doctrine of the Trinity was completely contrary to biblical teaching. And it would teach that Jesus and God were really the same being. And our intent this morning is not to cover really how it was that this doctrine came about or why it was accepted, but simply to show the impact that such a doctrine was able to have on the conduct of those who accepted it. A man by the name of Richard Rubenstein, who was a Jew, and a professor of conflict resolution wrote a book on the topic. And though he's not a Christadelphian, he was, able to see, he was able to see clearly the impact that such a teaching would have on the conduct of others. I thought this was quite interesting. This is what he has to say. The problem is not that Athanasius' theory, one of the individuals promoting this, mixes God with his creation, but it removes Jesus entirely from human society from the universe of moral turmoil and places him in the unchangeable heavens. If Christ is not a changeable choosing creature, at least something like us, how can we hope to imitate him? And if he is God himself, not our representative and intermediary, how can he intervene on our behalf? Athanasius apparently thinks that Christ-like behavior is to be limited to a few desert saints like Antony, while the rest of us sinners wait in hope of unmerited salvation. It substitutes the sacraments of the church for sacrificial action in the world. What one wonders would Jesus have made of that? I think the conclusion that Mr. Rubenstein comes to is quite perceptive. If Jesus was really God, what hope do we have to imitate him? In the place of sacrificial action, they substituted the sacraments of the church. And as the years went by, there would be many commandments of men that would be taught as doctrines. And in fact, this was the very problem. The teaching of man was being exalted instead of the teaching of God. An exaltation of self was actually one of the telltale signs that would identify what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians as the man of sin. Talking about this man of sin, Paul has this to say. He says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Interestingly, exaltation of men is identified by historians as one of the main reasons why Catholicism lost its way. Lawrence Leppard wrote a book entitled Losing the Way. He's a Christadelphian. He said, 
One of the main reasons for the losing of the way was the rise of church hierarchy and the consequent emphasis on decision-making of church doctrines and practices by authoritative fathers. It is important that more emphasis is placed on individual disciples to accept responsibility for the maintenance of the truth of Jesus and by God's grace to avoid losing the way. As bishops and church hierarchy sought more power and influence for themselves, the doctrines taught by the church began to change. Masim, in his Ecclesiastical History in Volume 1, had this to say. He said, These synods or councils of which no vestige appears before the middle of the second century changed nearly the whole form of the church. At first, they did not deny themselves to be the representatives of their churches and guided by instructions from the people, but gradually they made higher pretensions, maintaining that power was given them by Christ himself to decide upon rules of faith and conduct for the members of his church. Church hierarchy began or grew tired of taking instructions from their congregations, and he says they gradually made higher pretensions. They wanted more power for themselves. They wanted to be able to decide on the rules of faith and conduct. And through the claim that Christ himself had given them this power, instead of exalting God, they were more interested in exalting themselves. And of no one is this more evident than with their leader, the Pope himself. Just a few quotes to that effect. Pope Nicholas I, going back to 858, had this to say. He said, he, the Pope, can change justice into righteousness. He can correct the laws of states and alter them altogether. And by the plenitude of his power, he can, since he is above all law, dispense from every law. At the Council of Trent concerning the Pope in the 1500s, it was said, He hath all power on earth. All temporal power is his. The dominion, jurisdiction, and government of the whole earth is his by divine right. All rulers of the earth are his subjects and must submit to him. Pope Pius X in 1895 had this to say, The Lord our God no longer reigns. He has resigned all power to the Pope. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. So that when the Pope speaks, we have no business to examine. We have only to obey. We have no right to criticize his decisions or discuss his commands. It's hard to imagine how you can exalt yourself higher than this. The Pope claims to be reigning in the place of God. And indeed, this is exactly what 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 had said. He would exalt himself above all that is called God, showing himself that he is God. And so although claiming to be ruling in God's place, all was not as it seemed. Paul had said in 1 Timothy 6 verse 5 that the attitude which this false doctrine would promote would suppose that gain is godliness. Gain by the church and its leaders was behind more than they would like to admit. And here's just a couple of illustrations to make the point. This is from a man by the name of Avro Manhattan in his book, The Vatican Billions. He has this to say, 
Jesus, the founder of Christianity, was the poorest of the poor. Roman Catholicism, which claims to be his church, is the richest of the rich, the wealthiest institution on earth. How come that such an institution ruling in the name of this same itinerant preacher, whose want was such that he had not even a pillow upon to rest his head, is now so top-heavy with riches that she can rival, indeed that she can put to shame the combined might of the most redoubtable financial trusts, of the most potent industrial supergiants, and of the most prosperous global corporation of the world. He goes on to say, the religious exertion of the Roman church became so intermingled with her monetary interests as to identify the former with the latter, so that very often one could see a bishop or a pope fulminate excommunication and anathema against individuals, guilds, cities, princes, and kings, seemingly to preserve and defend the spiritual prerogatives of the church, when in reality they did so exclusively to preserve, defend, or expand the territorial, financial, or even commercial benefits of a church designed to retain and indeed to add to the wealth it already enjoyed. This policy was not confined only to some critical or peculiar period of Catholic history. It became a permanent characteristic throughout almost two millennia. Manhattan goes on to describe how things such as pilgrimages, holy sites, relics, saint worship, miracles, indulgences, even the Inquisition, all had their roots in accumulating wealth for the church. And though they would have you to believe differently, its leaders were not the model citizens that they were often made out to be. Here's what Albert Barnes has to say about the popes and his notes on the New Testament. He says, Pope Vagilius waded to the pontifical throne through the blood of his predecessor. Pope Marcellinus sacrificed to idols. Pope John II was publicly charged at Rome with incest. Pope John XIII usurped the pontificate, spent his time in hunting and lasciviousness and monstrous forms of vice. He fled from the trial to which he was summoned and was stabbed, being taken in the act of adultery. Pope Sixtus IV licensed brothels at Rome. Of the Pope's Platina, a Roman Catholic says, the chair of St. Peter was usurped rather than possessed by monsters of wickedness, ambition, and bribery. They left no wickedness unpracticed. Far from being the manifestation of God on earth, the popes were much better illustrations of the works of the flesh from Galatians chapter 5. This display of the flesh was not limited to their own lives, however. It instigated a cruelty against others that was really unmatched in its scope. John Fox has this to say in his book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. He says, though nearly all sects have persecuted their opponents during a brief season when men's passions were highly excited and true religion had mournfully declined, yet no denomination except the papal hierarchy has adopted as an article of religious belief and a principle of practical observance the right to destroy heretics for opinion's sake. The decrees of councils and the bulls of popes issued in conformity with those decrees placed this matter beyond a doubt. Persecution, therefore, and popery are inseparably connected. Because claiming infallibility what she has once done is right for her to do again, yea, must be done under similar circumstances or the claims of infallibility given up. There is no escaping this conclusion. The church was notorious for its so-called persecutions or its persecutions against so-called heretics. 
For hundreds of years, they would search out and destroy anyone who threatened its interests or who they suspected believed doctrines contrary to their own. Such was the attitude that was set in motion through the exaltation of the flesh. And the church has had hundreds of years to fine-tune its teaching and to adapt its methods. The works of the flesh as that Paul had warned about became a reality when wholesome doctrine was abandoned. When doctrines take hold in a religion that's opposed to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, works of the flesh abound. The exaltation of self is allowed to flourish unchecked. And rather than producing holiness, wickedness is the result. Doctrine impacts our action. And our consideration of the actions of the papacy is not so that we can point the finger at others and think that somehow we're above them in some way, otherwise we'd be following the same example of exaltation of self. But it's to remind us of the gravity of what can happen when we let go of the doctrines of Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. We need to withdraw from such teachings, to follow after the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine according to godliness. And we need to reflect on our own lives and consider how that we can better manifest God in our own life and not serve ourselves. We need to put aside the works of the flesh and instead emulate the fruit of the Spirit. The doctrine according to godliness can change how we live our life. We saw that last week. It can transform us from being wicked sinners to being the members of the body of Christ. And as Paul would go on to say, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we'll, uh, we'll close it there for, for this week. And next week, God willing, our subject will be, or two weeks, uh, God willing, our subject will be godliness with contentment. We've been considering in our series together the subject of godliness from Paul's first letter to Timothy. And just by way of reminder, the, uh, cl- the structure that we've been considering over the last few weeks, the first class we looked at was entitled The Mystery of Godliness. And in this class, we considered the mystery or the secret of godliness that has been revealed to us through the life of Christ. And this mystery or this secret 
of godliness, as we saw, is the truth concerning Jesus and really how that knowledge can change us, how it can change us to be like Christ, to be partakers with him in the age to come. And we consider two different, two opposing mysteries. There was the mystery of godliness and the mystery of iniquity. The one exalted God and the other exalted self. Of course, the mystery of godliness was the one that exalted God and the mystery of iniquity exalted self. And scripture describes for us really a, a war that exists between these two opposing mysteries these two opposing sides. But the challenge for us is that left to ourselves, we end up on the wrong side of the battle. Naturally, we all serve ourselves and not God. But the secret of godliness reveals to us how we can change sides, how we can avoid destruction and instead receive salvation, how we can go from serving ourselves to serving God. And so in our second class, we consider doctrine according to godliness. And really at the heart of the secret of godliness was a key doctrine. The first phrase that Paul describes in relation to the mystery of godliness was God manifest in the flesh. And here was a teaching concerning the nature of Christ. And it was this teaching, the truth concerning Jesus, that would separate these two mysteries. And so we considered how that doctrine affects our conduct. When we believe the truth concerning Jesus, it compels us to follow after Christ. But if we believe false doctrine, the consequences can be disastrous. And so in our second class, we followed the religious organization that scripture identifies with the mystery of iniquity. We saw how this organization, rather than following after God and the fruit of the spirit, instead exemplified the works of the flesh and exalted self. And we're reminded of the gravity of what can happen when we let go of the doctrines of scripture. We've been called to follow after the doctrine according to godliness. And instead of supposing that gain is godliness, Paul describes how that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so our title for today's class is Godliness with Contentment. And this phrase comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's start by reminding ourselves of what this godliness is that Paul is referring to. In our first class, we considered the idea of godliness. And really, we saw the meaning of the word godliness itself was the Greek word eusebia, which means right worship. It was having a devout reverence towards God. It was exhibiting a godly attitude having a godly conduct, doing deeds that are in keeping with the things of God. Godliness is having a God-likeness or being like God. Or you could say that it's God-manifestation, showing forth the characteristics of God. In our second class, we considered the idea from Galatians chapter 5 that showed the distinction between God manifestation and 
flesh manifestation. And Galatians 5 describes it as the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit were the characteristics that came from God. These are the things that every true believer is to demonstrate in their own life. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Here were the characteristics that are to define the life of a believer. Each one of them really could be considered as a class to themselves. But what was it that all of the fruit of the Spirit had in common? They were all serving others. Paul describes this for us earlier in the chapter, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. The whole point of having liberty or freedom in Christ was to learn how to serve one another in love. The characteristics of God were not self-serving. They were demonstrated in serving others. Having these characteristics would naturally produce action. In James chapter 1, verse 25, it says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Our understanding of the doctrine of God is not to be left as something that we hear. He calls it a forgetful hearer. It needs to motivate us to be a doer of the work. Earlier on in verse 22, he said, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Our knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus should motivate us to try to be like him, to emulate in our own life his character, to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, serving our brothers and sisters and not serving ourself. And really part of the wisdom of God is placing us in ecclesias where we can learn to serve each other. On our own, without our brothers and sisters, it can really be quite difficult to learn this idea of service to others. When we interact with others in the ecclesia, things aren't always going to be easy. We might run into conflicts along the way. But these conflicts can be overcome when we put aside our selfish tendencies and instead try to help each other to be more like God, to be more like Christ who was emulating his father. Our knowledge of Christ can be turned into action. Our knowledge of Christ needs to be turned into action, into service to others. In Psalm 15, verse 1, it says, O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Our walk needs to be blameless before God. Our action needs to be according to righteousness. But how does that happen? Well, he says it's by having the truth in your heart. 
the truth of God's word is what can change us. The doctrine according to godliness can change us. As those who have gone through this transformation that he says will dwell in God's holy hill. It's those who have exercised godliness that will be in God's kingdom. Well, exercising godliness was the very thing that Paul had exhorted, exhorted Timothy to do. So if you, if you have your Bibles open, if you come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll pick it up at verse 6. He says there, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So we need to be nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. And the word here for nourish means to educate. We need to be educated in the words of good doctrine. Really all starts with an understanding of true doctrine. Having understood it, we have to follow it. The ESV has at the end of of the verse, it says that you have followed. We have to act according to what we have learned. We have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we need to put the put the brethren in remembrance of these things. We need to remind each other of the way in which we ought to act. He says doing so is being a good minister or a good servant of Jesus Christ. It's serving each other and not serving ourself. And so in verse 7 he says, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. I think the ESV helps us to to give a sense of this verse. The ESV, it translates verse 7, it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's many things in life that might seem appealing, but as he describes it, they're nothing but irreverent, silly myths. Being irreverent means to show a lack of respect for people or for things that are generally taken seriously. And so this could be a lack of respect for people or it could be a lack of respect for God. And if we have a lack of respect for those who we are supposed to be serving, well, we're only just setting ourselves up for failure. Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Refuse it. Use your energy instead to train yourself for godliness. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Verse 8, he says, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. I don't think anyone would dispute that there is some value to bodily exercise. It's I think generally accepted that exercise can be good for your physical health. And Paul even says it profits a little. The ESV says there is some value. But there's something that has far greater value that ironically very few people care about. It says godliness is profitable or advantageous for everything that we do. 
And so if there was only one thing that you could spend your time and energy doing in life, I think this would have to be it. It's because this one thing can give us an advantage for everything that we do in life. And not only our life now, but our life to come as well. It's something that will benefit us for eternity. Interestingly enough, though, godliness is not something that comes naturally to anyone. It requires exercise. It requires practice. You could say there's, there's perhaps some things in life that certain people are born with a natural inclination or a natural ability to excel at. But this is not one of them. When it comes to godliness, we all start off the same. We're all inclined to serve ourselves. We all have a natural inclination to serve the flesh. That inclination has to be set aside in order to develop godliness. In order to serve God, we can no longer serve sin. We can no longer serve ourself. God wants us to develop characters that are like his. But this will only happen if we do it through regular, consistent exercise of a different kind. In Jeremiah 9 and verse 23, it says, Thus saith Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am Yahweh, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith Yahweh. I think this passage really sums up the whole idea of godliness. If we're wise, we won't glory in ourselves, we will glory in God. Our wisdom, our might, our riches are really nothing. What we can glory in is our understanding and knowledge of God. God exercises certain characteristics as well. God exercises, as he says, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. God's characteristics are on display for us to learn from in the world around us. And so when we exercise godliness in our own lives, well, we're, we're just simply following what God has set for us. Because God wants us to be more like him. And when we exercise his characteristics, that is what he will delight in. But these things take continual practice, continual application. And Paul describes it this way in his letter to Timothy. If you're still in 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you come down to verse 15, he says, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Meditation on the things of God is something that we need to do on a regular basis. Manifesting God is not something that comes naturally. It takes continual reflection on our own lives to identify how we can get better at it. 
We have to be honest with ourselves and where we've fallen short and strive to do better. We need to give ourselves wholly to the cause of godliness. The ESV says to immerse yourself in them. There is really, there's no shortcut to godliness. It's a wholehearted endeavor. But by giving ourselves wholly to it, it says our profiting will appear. And the margin says, if you see in your margin, instead of to all, it says it's in all things. Our profiting will appear in all things. If you recall back in verse 8, he said godliness was profitable in all things. And now after a wholehearted application to them, its profit would appear in all things. If we hold to the doctrine according to godliness and continue in it, then salvation will be the result. Not only salvation for us, but to all those who are willing to listen to its instruction as well. Well, there's another important element that Paul adds in his exhortation to Timothy about godliness. I think it's important to spend just a few minutes considering this element as well. In verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is really, it's a state of mind that needs to be linked with godliness. We've seen the incredible value or profit that goes along with godliness. Through godliness, we can be transformed from being wicked sinners without hope to being partakers with Christ in immortal glory. And knowledge of this great blessing which has been offered to us, especially considering we're undeserving of it, should naturally create in us a contentment which is beyond compare. But yet, there are certain things that can get in the way of this contentment. Sometimes, even though we know we should be content with our lot in life, sometimes we're not. We'll consider a couple of those reasons in a moment, but first let's look briefly at this idea of being content. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 11, says, not that, I re-speak in res- not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. doesn't matter what our state is in life, we can be content with it. Contentment really, as we saw, it's just a state of mind, which means we can choose whether we're going to be content or not. And if we find ourselves in depressing, humiliating circumstances, well, maybe we've been abased. That's what the word means. If, on the other hand, we have more than we need, well, maybe we've experienced abounding. But either way, we can be content. It doesn't matter whether we have food in abundance or we've gone hungry, we can still be content. It says everywhere and in all things we can be content. But this, na- this attitude is not something that comes naturally. Naturally, we always want more. We always want better. It describes it this way in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness. 
and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Whatever it is that we have, we should be content with it. We shouldn't be covetous of what others might have. Even if we have nothing, it says God will never leave us or forsake us. But the problem is we live in a society that promotes, that profits from our discontentment. Tries to program into us that we need better, that we deserve better. And really it feeds on our natural inclination towards covetousness. Brother E.J. Newman had this to say about it in the Christadelphian, and this is from 1955. Here's what he had to say. He says, the warning comes to us today with full force. This is a discontented age when frustration is a word often on people's lips. Discontentment expresses itself in various ways, most often in grumbling and irritability and in strife and wrangling. We are none of us free from these weaknesses, but it is the task of the disciple of Jesus Christ to fight against them. That fight cannot be waged with negative weapons. We may for a time overcome these weaknesses by suppressing them, but they will soon come to the surface again if we do not root them out and plant something in their place. That something must be the true contentment which goes hand in hand with godliness and which springs from a recognition of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So long as such contentment is lacking in our minds and hearts, its absence will show itself by a proneness to strife and contention, to grumbling and irritability. Discontentment is very common in the day in which we live. And this, written almost 70 years ago, was true then. How much more true is it today? But perhaps one of the biggest reasons for being discontent is, what, is a reason that Paul elaborates for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's riches. After describing the great gain that comes from godliness with contentment, he describes the emptiness of riches. Come with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll pick it up at verse 7. After he's just described how godliness with contentment is great gain, verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Though men might search after riches, and though they might obtain them, when they die, it says, it will be for nothing. They can't take it with them. Having our basic needs is covered is really all we should be concerned with. He says, if we have food and clothing, let us be content. And if we're not content, if we search after more, well, the warning comes in verse 9. He says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Those who are rich have temptations that they would not have had otherwise. I think sometimes we can be guilty of using this to our advantage. Those who have riches use their money to do things that they wouldn't have before. 
which is really the context for the phrase that we have, the well-known phrase in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It says, The love of money is the root of all evil. And here is the phrase I think sometimes we can use to our own advantage. Perhaps you've thought this before. The thought process goes something along the lines of the following. After all, there's, well, there's nothing wrong with money. Money is not good or bad. It's simply a means to an end. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And this is very true. But I think we can use this reasoning to start accumulating riches for ourselves. As long as we don't love money, then we're fine to accumulate it, can be the thought process that goes on in our subconsciousness. We're very good at deceiving ourselves when there's the possibility of benefiting self. Perhaps a better name for this would be covetousness. That's how it's described in Hebrews chapter 13, and it's how it's described here in verse 10. Coveting what we don't have, wanting more, wanting better. The problem with riches is that it's a means of temptation which we would not have had otherwise. And in fact, when money is increased, it provides opportunity for all of the worldly lusts that John describes in his epistle to be available to us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And actually, we have an interesting illustration of this in Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 really shows to us how all of the worldly lusts can be exercised by those who have riches. And so we'll just look at this rather briefly. In Psalm 73, you'll see here is the subject that's being described. In verse 3, it's those who, have, who are in prosperity. In verse 7, they have more than heart could wish. And in verse 12, they increase in riches. But what is it that they do when they have these riches? All of the worldly lusts. The lust of the flesh. In verse 6, violence covereth them as a garment. Verse 8, they're corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. Verse 12, they're ungodly. The lust of the eyes in verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. The pride of life in verse 6, pride compasses them about as a, as a chain. Verse 8, they speak loftily. In verse 9, they speak as if they rule in heaven and lay claim to the earth. Well, this doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who is rich will do these things. But what it does mean is that those who are rich have a temptation to do them that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Riches provide the means whereby we can satisfy the lust of the flesh. They provide the means where we can have the desire of our eyes. And they provide the means where we can start to think of ourselves better than others, as above them in some way instead of serving them. Whether we give in to those temptations is another matter, but it's a potential stumbling block which many have fallen victim to. But for those who do have riches, the psalmist has this advice. 
He says in Psalm 62, verse 10, If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. If riches increase, do not focus on them. Instead, use them to benefit others. And actually, it's the same advice in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you come with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll just pick it up later on in the chapter. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 17, he says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. We can't put our trust in riches. We have to put our trust in God. God is the one who has given them to us, and we must use them to benefit others. We must distribute what we have in service to others. We need to be rich in good works and not rich to ourselves. Brother Newman continues on in the Christadelphian in 1955 and puts it this way. He says, if this is a discontented age, it's also a materialistic one, which has gone in search of a false and illusory gain. We brought nothing into this world, says the apostle, and is certain we can carry nothing out. We all recognize the truth of his words, but the busy and anxious lives led by most of us, most of us are a denial of them. In our modern economy, it is difficult not to be caught up in the search for materialistic gain, for money and security, for possessions and comfort. We need the constant reminder which Paul gives Timothy regarding that which constitutes true gain, godliness with contentment. Well, another source of discontent is one that Paul highlights in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6 and at verse 9, he says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Here he's describing becoming weary in well-doing. Here, I think, is a very real source of discontentment. Becoming so busy in our service towards others that we start to lose the reason for why we're doing it in the first place. Might have started off for all the right reasons. Service towards our brothers and sisters, as we've seen, is what we've been called to do. Service towards others being doers of the word is how we put godliness into action in our lives. But yet it has to be done for the right reasons and with the right spirit. And so if we find ourselves complaining and wishing that we didn't have to serve each other, perhaps we've become weary in well-doing. He describes it again in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And in an, in an act of ecclesia, I think this can be a very real possibility to become weary in well-doing, to be so busy in the service of ecclesial life that we forget why we're doing it in the first place, to wish perhaps that we didn't have to do it. And when we become overburdened in our service towards others is when the seeds of service to self can start to creep back in. Perhaps we wish we had a little bit more time to serve ourselves, to do the things that we want to do, 
to serve ourselves more and to serve others a bit less. But the important thing is to be able to recognize these seeds of doubt in ourselves and not to let them get out of control. We all have a limit to how much we can take on. Even the great man Moses had a limit to how much he could handle. But sometimes, just like he did, we have difficulty in recognizing it in ourselves. Jethro, after seeing Moses' service from morning till evening, had this advice for him. He said in Exodus 18, verse 18, Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Moses needed help. The burden was too heavy for him to carry on his own. He needed the help of his brethren. And we too need the help of our brothers and sisters. But notice the answer was not to stop serving altogether. It was seek others to help us bear the burden. While we need the help of our brothers and sisters, we also need to recognize that we have access to a source of strength that's beyond ourself. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul recognized that his strength did not come from himself. It came through Christ. He was able to endure great things because he didn't trust in his own strength. His trust was in God. He was able to look to his Redeemer and take courage from the example that Christ had set for him. Indeed, I think here is one of the great antidotes to weariness. It's described this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. If we become weary and start to faint in our minds, what is it that we can do? Well, it says, look unto Jesus. Christ gave us an example to follow, <clears throat> to follow after, and reflecting on, us, reflecting on it, I don't think, can be done too often. When we start to think that our burdens are too heavy, perhaps all we need to do is reflect on what it is that our Lord went through. Perhaps our paltry burdens will more than likely pale in comparison. Becoming more like our Lord Jesus Christ is a work of slow development, but it's one that needs to be done day by day. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. When we're in pursuit of godliness, what happens to our outward man is really of no consequence. It's the inward man that is important. The inward man, it says, is renewed day by day. Our character is being transformed, and it happens through a daily regimen of the words of Scripture, doctrines which are according to godliness. Brother Dennis Gallette describes the problem of weariness this way in his book, The Genius of Discipleship. He says, Notice the danger outlined in the Galatian letter. 
It is not contamination, nor distraction, nor dilution, dilution of resources. It is weariness and fainting. Weariness is not tiredness. There's no defense against tiredness, but weariness must be resisted. Tiredness makes us rest to be fit to work again. Weariness is losing heart and losing hope. It is sighing instead of singing. It is ceasing to believe in the green evidence of growth. It is to relax through pessimism. By weariness, the sharp edge is blunted. Shining faces are shadowed. So let every disciple keep bright the vision of the harvest and be forearmed against the assault of weariness and fainting. So we shall reap if we faint not. We need to keep the vision of the coming day of glory forefront in our minds. <clears throat> the day when we will reap if we faint not. Well, as we've considered throughout our series, the development of godliness is all about serving others and not serving ourselves. Paul describes this idea in a different way and one which I think we're all familiar with. He says in Philippians 2 verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind that we need to develop is the mind of Christ. Christ was able to perfectly manifest his Father. After all, as we saw, he was God manifest in the flesh. He showed to mankind how that mortal men and women with the proneness to sin can overcome their natural tendencies and manifest the characteristics of God. Put more simply, he showed us how we can serve one another and not serve ourselves. In order to develop godliness, we have to give up the things that are pleasing to the flesh, and instead do the things that are pleasing to God. We have to give up the riches of this life in order to gain something far greater. Puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Anything in this life that causes us to put our confidence in the flesh is something that has to be let go. It's something that has to be counted, as he says, as loss. In order to win Christ, we have to experience loss. We have to suffer the loss of those things which cause us to serve self. Because it's only through the loss of self that we can gain Christ. And in fact, this was the whole reason that God created us to begin with. We were created for the